According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're approaching the end of chapter 2 and uh, just have a few things to take a look at in uh, verses 17 and 18. Uh, plus perhaps some lingering things from verse 16 that uh, maybe were not explained so well last week, but we'll uh, leave that with the Holy Spirit to make clear for each one of us. There's a lot here. And Hebrews gets deeper and deeper and deeper with each uh, passing chapter. So stay tuned. If you're struggling now, pray harder. The Holy Spirit is faithful. And uh, we even reach a point uh, when the author says, you know, I would love to take it even deeper, but you can't handle it. That's uh, towards the end of chapter 5, uh, where he wants to really plunge into the things of Melchizedek. And he says, concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And uh, the author of Hebrews recognizes that some of the things he could have gone into are deeper than where his readers are ready to go. So stay tuned. Uh, We're uh, keeping it in prayer. We're asking the Father's blessing. It's a book I've wanted to teach for 25 years, and uh, now the Lord is letting it happen, and I'm very thankful for that. So for this morning, um, verse 16, he assuredly does not, and I don't like the translation, give help. It's lay hold, take hold of angels. But he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. And that's what we dealt with a week ago, and I'll touch on a little bit of that. And then verses 17 and 18, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And that's a powerful truth. We're going to focus on here today. Before we do though, we're going to take a moment for silent prayer. We're going to call upon our Father to open our eyes and to lead us in these truths. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your Son. And Father, for his humility, how he laid aside his privileges and he came to this earth and he lived our life. He walked in our shoes, Father, and I thank you that he faced every test we face, yet without sin. And I thank you, Father, on the basis of what he experienced, he is now able to come alongside. Not only is he able, he does so. He's willing. Daily, Father, he sits at your right hand making intercession for the saints. And I thank you so much for these powerful truths. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would be blessed by the study of these verses here this morning. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so a week ago, um, we went through verses 15 and 16. Uh, We were talking about uh, freeing us from the fear of death and the power of sin that uh, continues to reign if we let it. If we are out of fellowship and not walking right, then sin still has a power over us and it will rule if we let it rule. And so we don't want to let it rule. We We want to have the power of Jesus Christ ruling on our behalf. We want to live that life of freedom that we are saved for. And then in verse 16, there's a bit of a a break there 
And 15 and 16 really don't go together. There, there is a, a logical break, there is a, a context break. And so I thought maybe by, by lumping them together in a single message last week, I had not done any favors in, in that. Uh, because we really have a, a, a restatement of an earlier thought. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? And, and it was obviously none of the angels. And, uh, but it's the Son. It is God the Son. It is Jesus Christ is the one that the Father holds in his right hand. So assuredly he does not take hold of angels, but he takes hold of the seed of Abraham. And that's a much better translation. If you ever want to just do a little study on that. Pull it up in your in your logos, and then bring up every English Bible that translates uh, Hebrews two sixteen, and you'll see the trouble that the the translators have with it. And about a third of them will render give help, and uh, about another third of them will render take hold, and then another will even say take the form of that that uh, references his incarnation. That Jesus does not take the form of an angel; he takes the form of man. And uh, they just they struggle with how to handle the take hold of. And I think um, we do well with it by just leaving it as take hold of and understanding that the taking hold of is the same as sitting at my right hand. It's the same as the father identifying with the son and giving that judgment to the son. And so it's a, it's a similar idiom. In other words, sitting at his right hand equals the father taking hold, holding him in his right hand. Anyway, so we dealt with that last week. Uh, He does not take hold of angels for the beloved right-hand servant. He takes hold of the Son of Man. It's Jesus Christ is His beloved right-hand servant. And this was prophesied all through uh, Isaiah. God the Father takes hold of the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And in taking hold of Jesus Christ, guess what? He takes hold of us also. You and I are bride of Christ. You and I are positionally in Christ. So if the Father takes hold of Jesus Christ, guess what? We're right there, all right? We are right there in Christ, held in the right hand of God the Father. And that's significant, okay? John 10, other passages make that very significant for not only eternal security purposes, I think for uh, stewardship responsibilities, for designated authority, for, uh, uh, for power and blessing that come at the Father's right hand. So uh, aspects there. I want to move on this morning though and tackle verses 17 and following. So because the Father has taken hold of him, because of verse 16, we now have a therefore. A therefore in verse 17, right? And don't you just love the therefores? It's a kind of a corny joke, but you pay attention. Anytime that there is a therefore, right? You ask yourself, what's it there for? Right. It's making a point. It is, a, it is a logical conclusion that's based upon things that have already been said, and uh, this is no different. He had to be made like his brethren. Really, he was obligated. The verb here is a verb of obligation. Jesus Christ was under an obligation. This is a have to. And some people don't like it. I love it. Some people uh, really resist the idea of God being under any kind of obligation of Jesus being under any kind of obligation. And I think that's not a problem with Bible verses necessarily. I think it's a problem with their theology. And uh, they, they are so hyper-defensive of the sovereignty of God, they believe that any have-to God encounters diminishes His sovereignty. That if God has a have-to, well then that limits His sovereignty. And they don't like that. 
See, Well, I prefer to stick with the Scriptures because God puts Himself under a lot of have-tos. There are things that God cannot do. There are things that God has to do. And that's not a limit on His sovereignty. That's God's own sovereignty that's determined those things. And I think it's the same thing here. There's a have-to. There's an obligation. If He is going to be our high priest, then He's obligated. He's obligated. There's certain things that just go with the job. There are certain things, there are duties and obligations that are part and parcel with the position. See, uh, how could I be the pastor of Austin Bible Church if I lived in Washington State, for example? That would pretty much uh, hinder me. I would have an obligation to live nearby. I'm obligated to, I have an obligation to, uh, to be local with a local church, all right? Well, that's maybe a bad illustration, but, but God has an, illustra- has an obligation here. An obligation Jesus has to be made like his brethren in all things, in all things, so that in the things pertaining to God, he can make propitiation. Now, this obligation, by the way, is going to be expanded again in chapter 5, so stay tuned. Uh, Whatever we don't glean today, we'll get a second shot at this in chapter 5 as far as obligations are concerned. Jesus' obligation is going to be paralleled with the Levitical high priest's obligation in chapter 5. So uh, and we, I can, don't mind taking a quick peek at it here. Um, it'll, it'll help us out down the road and you'll get a sense for what we're talking about. Uh, we're introducing the high priest in chapter 5. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to take a later chapter and inject it back into this chapter. That's a, that's a problem. We can't do that. But we are saying is what we're learning in this chapter is going to have a follow-up in chapter 5. Okay, So just stay tuned for that. Uh, where we read, Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. The language we have this morning, it comes back here things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice, there's no, is there a mention of propitiation? There's mention of gifts and sacrifices, okay? And he can deal gently, we're talking about human high priest now, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. I love that. Raise your hand. That's me, okay? He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness, and this is what it means. The high priest, he's not above, he's not better, he's not, you know, some highfalutin guy with a robe and better than all everybody else. He is a sinner too. He's got weaknesses, he's got struggles. He can identify with the flock. And because of it, he is obligated. There's our term. He is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. That with Aaron and his sons and every high priest that's ever been, he too is a sinner, so he too has to start by offering a sacrifice for himself, first and foremost, and then he's able to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Okay? It's like anything that I'm up here preaching, believe me, I preach to myself before I preach to anybody else in this room in terms of the exhortations and the, and the judgments and the, uh, all the tough, hard-hitting messages that come out there. They, they hit me first, and then if somebody else happens to be eavesdropping, that's... Uh, That's icing on the cake. Now, chapter 5 is going to go on and expand upon that because guess what? Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He does not need to first of all offer a sacrifice for himself because there is nothing he has to sacrifice for. He never once sinned. He never, uh, never had anything that needed to be sacrificed for. 
which sets him apart, superior, greater to Aaron and that whole priesthood. And that's the, uh, the impact there on chapter 5. So just stay tuned for that. Uh, the concept we have here in chapter 2 is going to be paralleled when we get there. But uh, back to Hebrews 2 then, verse 17, he was obligated. He was obligated to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might. All right, this is, this is what makes it possible. Because he comes in the flesh, because he walks the human experience in true humanity, he is now equipped, if he volitionally chooses to do so, to engage in the merciful and faithful priestly ministry. And that's, uh, that's described there. All right. So now notice, there is a logical progression in this verse, and it's not by accident. The logical progression in this verse is significant. Just spell it out. Step one, step two, step three. He was obligated to be made so that he might become, so that he might propitiate. Those are the steps. And if step number one doesn't happen, two and three can't happen. They cannot happen. Number one happens so that he might, purpose clause. So he was obligated to be made. To be made, and specifically to be made like his brethren. But the verb to be made is, uh, is what we're focusing on here. It's a passive voice. He's not the one doing it, but he's submitting to it. It's, he's experiencing the effects of it, all right? Being made like his brethren. And this is what the plan of God calls for. This is the Father's design. Uh, he even celebrates that when he quotes Psalm 40 and says, a body thou hast prepared for me. Because he's always been the Son. God the Son has always been in fellowship with the Father, but he's not always had a body. God the Son didn't get a body until a virgin got pregnant. <laughs> All right? And then a sinless body was prepared. And through the sinless body, that's why the virgin birth is necessary. Because had it not been a virgin birth with a real human father, that would have been a sinful body, right? And so the virgin conceives and has a child. And that sinless body is the body thou hast prepared for me. The son is celebrating the wisdom of the father's plan. And so God the son enters into that body. And, and of course, the birth of, of Jesus Christ in the manger. We're approaching the Christmas season now. And uh, no lights yet, though, until Thanksgiving, I insist. Um, the, the, uh, we're approaching that season now. He walked that entire earthly walk from birth to death to identify with you and with me. And so he is now able to, uh, to not only go to the cross, but after the cross, he's able to sit at the Father's right hand and pray for us, to intercede for us, to be our advocate at the Father's right hand. If we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that's the impact of what we're looking at here. So he had to, he was obligated to be made something he was not before something he was not before. So in the beginning was the Word, eternally existent, but then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, all right? So that's the difference between is and became. And uh, this becoming is significant. God became man, and uh, God became uh, uh, incarnate in a human body, as we understand that. And so in order that, what does it say? He had to, he was obligated to, 
so that. That's a purpose clause. That's, a, that's, a, that's an expression that defines God's thinking. It defines the reason why this was happening. God does never, God never does nothing for no reason. Got that? All right. Wow, that was good. Write that down. You see, we do all the time. And sometimes we have reasons we don't want to admit, so we pretend we have different reasons. God doesn't do that, all right? God knows his reasons. Everything he does, especially in crushing his son, putting his son to death, he's not doing that for no reason. And and in order to prepare him to do that, other things have to happen because the angel of the Lord can't be the propitiation. The burning bush can't be the propitiation. Any other uh, appearance of God the Son on planet earth doesn't qualify. It has to be true humanity in the flesh. He has to judge sin in the flesh. And uh, the, the necessity of these things is vital. So that. So purpose clause is so that. And then the subjunctive mood completes the purpose clause so that he might so that he might. And anytime you have a so that, anytime you have a purpose clause, the verb that follows is going to be in the subjunctive mood. It's going to be the mood of potential. It's going to be the mood, uh, not of indicative, not of fact, but potential. This is what should result, what can result, what ought to result, what does result if we respond by faith. All right? God uh, so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. So that. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, might not perish, would not perish, okay? Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Why? Because maybe he believes and maybe he doesn't believe, all right? But if he believes, you, you, don't, you have eternal life. You never perish because the provision's been made. Same thing happens here. The provision's been made. He has been obligated. He has been made like his brethren so that he might, he should, he could, he might. It's in potential, but it, what it requires though is the son has to be faithful. The son has to be willing. The son has to say, not my will, but thine be done. The son has to consider the cost, despise the shame, and, and proceed. And he does so. Praise God for that. He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Another purpose clause, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And the the reason why he has to be a merciful and faithful high priest, the reason why if he's not merciful and faithful, then he can't make propitiation for the people. God the Father won't be satisfied with him until he is the merciful and faithful high priest. And so we have another passage here that describes what qualifies him to be the propitiator. Okay, Now we love propitiation, we love the fact that the Father was satisfied. To us, it's a powerful blessing. We know that He's the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for the whole world, right? There's not a sinner that's ever been born that the Father was not satisfied that the Son's work was, was sufficient, okay? That the Father was satisfied because the Son was qualified to be the propitiator, all right? And it has nothing to do with who or what we are, what we've done, any sins of what we've done, not by works of unrighteousness, which we have done, okay? It's what God has done. It's what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And so because of this, number one leads to number two, which leads to number three. 
And this necessity, by the way, is by virtue of God's sovereign plan. It's not a have-to where he's limiting his sovereignty. It's a have-to where he is operating on his own design. God himself self-limited when he created angels and humanity with volition. The fact that we can make choices. God sovereignly bestowed upon us the capacity to defy his will. And he sovereignly limited himself to accept that we're going to face the consequences of our negative volition. That we're going to reap what we sow. That angels and men alike are going to express negative volition and God accepts that even though it means he has to put his son to death in order to redeem us from that that lost estate. He's willing to do that. And so there's just a couple of things here. Um, You might not make the connection immediately with Matthew 26 or Acts chapter 2. So let me tell you, let me explain what I'm talking about here. This necessity is by virtue of God's sovereign plan. You know, when Jesus was praying to remove this cup from me, if it is possible, Matthew 26, 39. And uh, just consider this. His disciples kept falling asleep and that was kind of a discouragement to him um, because he confesses to them. To Peter, James, and John, he says, look, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. This is when he becomes the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is when he has the maximum grief assigned to his soul is in Gethsemane. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it is possible. Okay, you see that? And here is Jesus in his humanity considering, is there another way to do this? (laughs) Can we switch to plan B? Except he knows there is no plan B if it is possible. But he uses that language like we would use that language. He walks like we walk. He thinks things through like we think things through. You and I face a test and it crosses our mind. Hey, can I get out of this? Okay. And guess what? That's, it's not a sin to be tempted like that. It's only a sin when you start to think, okay, yeah, I can get out of this. Let me figure out how. He doesn't do that. He immediately rejects the temptation. He says, yet, yeah, not as I will, but as you will. And so we volitionally submit our will to the Father's will. And Jesus Christ did that right here. He voiced it, but would not act upon it. And that becomes, I think, part of the have to. Because the only only alternative then is that he doesn't go to the cross and we don't get saved. But if he's going to be the firstborn of many brethren, instead of just the firstborn of him all by his lonesome, then uh, he has to go to this cross. And that's uh, that's what he does here happens again in verse 42. In between, of course, he finds the sleeping disciples and that upsets him. He says, you couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Not even one hour? Come on. How much sleep do you need? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Notice what it says, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know, in the, in the temptation here, of course, God cannot sin. The God man, we get that. Deity cannot sin. But humanity is added to this equation here in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And what was he concerned about? He, was, he wanted his disciples praying for him. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And how unthinkable is that, that in his humanity he would be tempted in such a way as to, uh, as to abandon the, the Father's program? Okay, my deity can't, but humanity was being tempted here. 
So he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, and this is an if certainty. We got a lot of if certainties in Hebrews, okay, that bother some people because they think it's a loser salvation thing. No, not in the slightest. If this cannot pass away unless I drink it. So it's a have to. If I drink it, guess what? Victory. Your will be done. And so there's a logical progression that happens and one has to, be, has to precede two, two has to precede three. If, if the steps prior don't happen, the steps after can't. They absolutely cannot happen. And that's the, uh, the uh, impact here on verse 17. I think likewise Acts 2.23 speaks of this. And I like, uh, I like putting these together. You might not think of these right off the bat of the have-tos, talking about Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Was Jesus doing those miracles? Or was God doing those miracles? This verse says God was doing them through him. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit working in Christ. God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Isn't that beautiful? See, I love sovereignty. I love predestination. I love foreknowledge. I love every aspect of God's sovereignty. It does not negate or contradict or stop human volition. We still make our choices. Jesus still had to make his choice to obey the Father, even though it was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So it was God's sovereign plan, but you're the ones that volitionally did it. So who's going to reap those consequences? All right. You can't say, well, it wasn't my fault. I was predestined to do it. You chose to do it and you're going to face the consequences. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. So because he permitted your negative volition to thwart his plan, not at all. It was his predetermined plan and foreknowledge anyway. And then he overcame your little murder plot by bringing him back to life. How about that? Okay. He never thwarted Jonah's volition. Just sent a whale to swallow him and vomit him up on a beach and say, okay, go to Nineveh. And so, you know, God, the sovereignty and free will, these studies are deep and a lot of a lot of folks struggle, but they've been debating them for thousands of years, and even before Calvin, they've been the Jews would would debate it in the Old Testament times, as far as the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Anyway, both are true, and I I preach them both. Anyway, this kind of a thing, you know, God determined it, but you did it. Will be unto you, right? And that's why uh, they're pierced to the heart in verse thirty-seven. Like, well, what do we do now? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? <laughs> we crucified our Messiah. The Jewish people have been waiting for 2,000 years since Abraham for the coming of Christ. He came and they crucified him. What do we do now? What do we do now? Anyway, that's the whole sermon there in Acts chapter 2. Peter's first sermon on uh, Pentecost. Anyway, it's important I think as we look at Hebrews that we recognize there is an obligation he is obligated to be made like his brethren. And there's some interesting vocabulary there and some other terms. We're going to let that go. But 
he, uh, it was necessary. He was obligated to be made like his brethren so that if he's not like his brethren, he will never be a merciful and faithful high priest. By the way, on this, merciful is separated. And you don't really see that in the English. Merciful is separated and spotlighted from faithful. And to me, that's, that's curious. And it's, uh, it's a glorious thing. Greek is so fun because it's not a word or language. And you are free to move words around and put stuff up front if you want. And uh, in ways that you can't do in Hebrew, you can't do in English or other, other languages, okay? Um, and then we're used to this in English and Spanish and other languages. We might have White House in English or Casablanca in Espanol. And, and so the order is different, but it's still a word order. And depending on the language you speak, you've got to stick to that order or you just don't communicate. You end up confusing people. Greek, on the other hand, has you can move words around and put a word up front. And so you might have a merciful and faithful high priest, but you might want to choose, instead of having merciful and faithful linked together in front of high priest, you might choose to have merciful way out front. So that merciful, he might become and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And you and I would not be comfy with that at all. We think, that's, that's how weird is that? Okay, But this verse takes the merciful and puts it right up front and says, look at this, merciful. And really, what is it that, that makes us merciful? What is it that causes us to have compassion for others in their sufferings? Right? And you think about it, faithful, Jesus can be faithful without any kind of suffering. Jesus can be faithful without an incarnation. Jesus is eternally faithful. One of his titles is the faithful amen. All right? Uh, I, I think he could be a faithful high priest without the incarnation, but to be a merciful and faithful high priest, to learn experientially. This is a knowledge that he's gaining through experience. It's not just a knowledge that he possesses by virtue of omniscience. This is a knowledge that he's gleaning through the experience. And so on the basis of this experientially acquired knowledge, of his own sufferings, he has now become a merciful and faithful high priest. The development of this experiential mercifulness came through temptation and suffering. And we're going to see this again and again because it comes up again and again. The development of this experiential mercifulness. And it's it's. it's another useful study. How does God know what He knows? And when, when God the Son emptied Himself, when He entered into the womb and spent nine months in utero and then was birthed, what did He know? And, and what did he, how did He sovereignly limit what His humanity knew? Because in His humanity He had to learn like you and I learn. And so that means that He was sovereignly putting his omniscience in a little lockbox, if you will. Okay? Not using omniscience. Not using omniscience in the womb or in the nursery, in the manger, or in the Sunday school. Okay? He wasn't going to synagogue and cheating by using omniscience to recite all his memory verses. (laughs) Okay? Because how easy would that be? And it would not be identifying with us. Okay? By the way, we got... The Wojciech's coming in December. That's going to be fun. 
Scripture Memory Fellowship. We've got the Whitechucks are going to be here the first Sunday in December to uh, explain to us how Scripture Memory Fellowship works, to demonstrate it, to, to describe their ministry. So stay tuned. If you thought you could never memorize Bible verses, wait till you meet the Whitechucks. Okay? But Jesus did not tap into omniscience to learn his Bible verses. He didn't tap into omnipotence to solve all of his problems. He humbled himself. Not once did he ever exercise his deity. Everything he did was as a spirit-indwelled believer like you and like me. We're spirit-indwelled and uh, we do what we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it was the development of this experiential mercifulness. He learned by the things that he suffered. Came through temptation and suffering. Hebrews 2.18 says this, the very next verse, we'll get into this next. Um, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And keep in mind, ability is not automatic either. Just because you have the ability doesn't mean you have to do it or you even want to do it. All right, but, you, but he had the ability and he wants to do it. By virtue of obtaining this ability, he is pleased to obey the Father and and fulfill this merciful and high and uh, faithful high priestly function. He is able to come to the aid of those who are so tempted. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, you probably have heard a verse or two in this stretch. Like, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. All right. In fact, for a lot of people, that's the verse you couldn't wait to get to when you heard that we're going to study Hebrews. You're like, Hebrews, yeah, the Word of God is alive and powerful. Well, we'll get there, okay? But we've got to lay the groundwork first. But in that, in that recognition that the Word of God is our criteria for judgment, let's understand this. It's the written Word, it's the living Word, it's Jesus Christ Himself that can look upon the heart and pierce as deep as it needs to pierce. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's Jesus. We have to do with him. And uh, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. What a delight. What a delight. That's our high priest. And where is he now? He's passed through the heavens. He's in the third heaven. He's seated at the Father's right hand. He, uh, he didn't just go in an earthly replica and come back out. He, uh, he accomplished our once and for all redemption. And then verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay? Now that's a double negative, it's reversing itself, but understand there, okay? We have a high priest who can identify with our weaknesses. That's why the incarnation, that's why the Word became flesh. What kind of high priest would he be if he didn't understand what we're going through? That's why it boggles my mind how a, a celibate, unmarried, never been married Catholic priest can counsel a, a, you know, a husband and a wife in their marriage. Really? How does that work? Okay. Maybe that's just me. But uh, Scripture says our substitute identifies with us. Not only did he take our place, he lived our life. He lived our life. He knows it. He gets what we're going through. And that's, that's powerful. That's absolutely powerful. And I'm able to use that too, by the way. Because there's things I haven't experienced. I haven't, you know, the loss of a spouse. Well, 
Maybe I don't understand that because I've not experienced that. But you've got brothers and sisters here who do. And even if it's not me directly, my Lord does. My Lord can intercede. He's not limited by my ignorance in any event. Uh, So we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Not one time did he ever respond to a temptation with with a sin, with a mental attitude sin, with even a desire to do it, okay? Because you know we sin long before we physically get it done. We sin mentally when we choose to do it. We sin mentally when we decide that's what we're going to do, and then we start plotting and scheming of how we can get away with it, okay? When once we cross that line, we are long gone past carnality, okay? We are in the darkness at that point. We've grieved the Holy Spirit. We've quenched the Holy Spirit. We've resisted the Holy Spirit. We haven't done the deed yet, but we're, we're scheming on how to do it. We have every intention of doing it. And if God's overruling grace steps in and kind of thwarts it, keeps it from happening, if he, uh, he arranges our circumstances where it never does happen, well, you still need to confess. You're still carnal, okay? You just have one fewer sin that you have to confess because he kept you from doing the overt sin. So that's one fewer sin, but you still got a whole string of mental attitude sins that need confession. And so... Um, one who has been tempted in all things is yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with on, on this basis because we have this high priest. What do we do with this high priest? Okay, You ever have something, you don't know what to do with it? Okay, Well, it should not be your high priest. You have a high priest and you should know immediately what to do with it. Draw near. <laughs> okay, Draw near because you also are a priest. He's in the holy place. Draw near. We belong there. Absolutely, we belong there. Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And uh, I love the fact that that mercy is there and he's the merciful and faithful high priest. We wouldn't get that mercy if he wasn't the merciful and faithful high priest. So there it is. It's a beautiful thing. Now, therefore, let's look at verse 18. Let us draw near. You know, in the Old Testament, I don't. Anybody here Jewish? Anybody here uh, of a priestly line? I don't know. Um, maybe. Um, and even then, do we really know? <laughs> or do we have legends, things that our grandfather told us once? Really? Yeah, I'll share those with you some other time. Um, but I'll, just speaking as a Gentile dog, I couldn't be a priest in the Levitical priesthood. I'm not Jewish. I'm not from the tribe of Levi. I'm not from the, the family of Aaron. Not every Levite could be a priest. Most Levites were non-Aaronic Levites. And so they were Levites in the Levitical tribe, but they were not Aaron, uh, from, descended from Aaron. They weren't in the family of Aaron. They weren't eligible to be priests. Okay, uh, But that's not true in the church age. All of us are priests. All of us are in Christ. We've all entered within the veil that is His flesh. So we should draw near. We should hold fast to our confession. And uh, we need to hug our high priest as, uh, as anything, okay? We draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? Because in the Old Testament, what was the pinnacle of the Old Testament? One guy, one day a year, he went in there and he put blood on a mercy seat. One guy, one day a year. There was no throne of grace in there. It was a mercy seat. 
But Jesus is our mercy seat. Okay? And so it's not just a mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat. We come to a throne of grace. That's, that's powerful. That is absolutely powerful. And when you really want to dig into it, you'll learn, to your shock, that the term mercy seat is the term propitiation. <laughs> okay? So the mercy seat is the propitiation. It is the satisfaction for our sin. And we may, because he's done this, now we may. Let us, let us, so that we may, okay? And this too is the subjunctive mood. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. Because maybe volitionally you and I will decide that we don't need prayer. Uh, We decide that, well, prayer doesn't work anyway, or well, uh, God doesn't care, or it's not going to work, or whatever. So we choose not to exercise our priesthood. And in so doing, we think we can handle it ourselves. We think, well, I'll take care of this. Wrong, 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 wrong. There's no mercy, there's no grace in that. If you want to receive the mercy and grace to help in time of need, then draw near. That's the provision. That's the provision for it. All right, now some things out here. Three things out of verse 16. First of all, God cannot be tempted. But the humanity of Jesus was very much able to be tempted. Are we clear on that? Because he is the God-man. He is in a hypostatic union. He is undiminished deity. And true humanity united forever in one person. Okay? And this, this, is, uh, this was argued in early centuries of church history. They really debated this back and forth. They wanted to make sure they had the right uh, definition for hypostatic union. They wanted to make sure that they were biblical in every respect. That it wasn't two, uh, two, it was it two natures in two people? Was it one nature in one person? Was it two natures in one person? How, uh, how are they going to resolve that? And so some of the early church councils were a- answering that very question and they got uh, placed in early Christian creeds, for example. Well, obviously God cannot be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. James 1, 3, 13. If you're being tempted right now, God is permitting it, but he is not directing it. He is not the source of temptation and he never tempts. Uh, that's not his nature. That's not his purpose. That's not his style. That's not, his, that's not what he does. The tempter is his adversary. Satan is the tempter. He is the tempting one. And if God permits it, he's using it for his purpose, but he's still not the tempting one. So James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God does not do that. All right? He cannot be tempted. He does not do the tempting. That's how he operates. And so that's true. And if it's true for Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, then it's got to be true for God the Son when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, that the deity of Jesus Christ is not able to be tempted. But what about his humanity? Okay. Now here too we have an argument because there's some there are there are believers that don't want to think in these terms. But is the humanity able to be tempted? I think clearly he is able to be tempted. And uh, and so how do we balance that? How are both statements true? Well, notice. Let me get a little bit past verse 13, still in James 1. Um, each one is tempted, notice when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, 
it gives birth to sin. And then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. It births death. And so this is a a passage that describes the whole temptation and sin uh, gestation period uh, for what it is. Okay, and just as you know, babies don't babies aren't birthed the the, the morning after the fornication. They uh, the sin uh, starts a long time before the uh, doesn't have to be fornication. Any any any. Uh, let me take that back. It could be marital relations, sanctified and glorious and beautiful, but you're still not going to get a baby the next morning. Okay, that's going to take nine months or thereabouts. And same thing with sin. The sin that you do is like a baby. It just doesn't show up. There's been a, uh, there's been a conception of that sin. And then there was a birthing of that sin. And in the conception of that sin is what's being described here. In other words, temptation has come. You have been carried away with it. You've been enticed by it. And Jesus never took those steps. He was never, never allowed himself to be carried away with any sinful idea. Never found any sinful idea remotely enticing. He was answering every temptation with Scripture. So as not to be carried away. So as not to be tossed here and there. And he was stable with the Word of God. And so there's that. But now, the humanity of Jesus Christ was very much able to be tempted. And that's clear in Matthew chapter 4. And people want to put words in here that aren't in here. But the words that are in here are the ones the Holy Spirit put in here, and i got to go with that. Jesus was tempted. Jesus was tempted. The Bible says that. And so how do I reconcile that God can't be tempted, but Jesus is tempted, Jesus is God? How are all of these things true? I believe the simplest reconciliation, of course, is that deity cannot be tempted, but humanity can. And that in His humanity, the humanity of Jesus Christ And he told his disciples this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That the humanity of Jesus Christ in his flesh, the bodily weaknesses could have been his undoing. Okay, They weren't. But the potential was there. And so Jesus was led up by the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God the Holy Spirit was the agent of the verb led up. Really, uh, it's, a, it's a powerful driving that happens here. Into the wilderness. Purpose clause, to be tempted. That's the Holy Spirit's purpose. The purpose for taking him to the wilderness is for him to be tempted. If Jesus is not able to be tempted, then the Holy Spirit is failing in his purpose. Because it's the Holy Spirit's purpose for Jesus to be tempted. And so... Uh, for those that, that have looked me square in the eye and said Jesus wasn't really tempted. He just went through the motions. It was a pretend temptation because God can't sin. And I agree with you, God can't sin. But He is the God-man. And humanity not only can be tempted, has to be tempted. Read the book of Hebrews. He has to be tempted. If he's not tempted, and if he doesn't learn through the sufferings of what he was tempted, then he can't be our merciful and faithful high priest. That's why this is, I I, I don't mean to, yeah I do, I do mean to belabor the point. I mean to belabor the point so redundantly 
that it sink, it sinks in, in in an unforgettable way. So to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. That's the order on that. So uh, intimate in prayer, so spiritual, so, I mean, food doesn't even cross his mind. Not until 40 days of fasting does he realize, man, I'm, I'm hungry. Okay? And then the tempter came. Now, if Jesus can't be tempted, why is this guy called the tempter? That's kind of curious. Well, he's a tempter anyway. He's, he's been the tempter ever since he fell. He's been the tempter. He was the tempter of Eve and as the serpent, and he's been a tempter. That's kind of been a job description of his for some time now. And he's good at it. He's well qualified. He's well rehearsed. He knows what he's doing. Except with Jesus now, he's met his match. <laughs> All right? Here's the first time. The, the second Adam is going to have victory when the first Adam didn't. So the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, and even admits that you are, it's a first class condition, I know that you are the Son of God, and being the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered, it is written. It is written. That's my second favorite perfect passive participle behind, it is finished. We have, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so with every temptation, is he carried away? Is he enticed? Is there a conception? I believe conception happens, you know, when sperm meets egg. I think it's when temptation meets volition and says, yeah, I want to do that. Okay? That's conception. After that, you've got a fertilized egg in there. That sin's alive. That sin is alive and you're thinking about Now, how can I do that? How can I get away with that? I don't want to get caught. How can I do that without consequences? (laughs) Okay, Because I'm going to do it. I just want to mitigate the damage. You see what I'm saying? You are carnal already. When when you're carried away and enticed, that's when sin has conceived. So don't play with it. Don't daydream with it. All right. So, and he was. He was tempted. And we're told specifically, we read it already, every temptation was answered with Scripture and not one temptation ever led to even one personal sin. Not even one mental attitude sin. Not one sin of omission. Every temptation was answered with Scripture. Not one temptation ever led to even one personal sin. You know, he could have sinned all over the place just by omission. He could have not prayed for somebody he was supposed to pray for. And that sin of omission would have made him carnal and disqualified to go to the cross. You know, they're stripping his garments, they're mocking him, and he's praying for them, saying, Father, hold this not against them. They know not what they do. He was praying for them in the will of the Father. Had he not done so, it would have been a sin of omission. Ever think about that? Sins of omission. And we're tempted all the time to to do sins of omission, or I'm preaching to myself again, and say, well, I'm not doing anything. I'm just, yeah, but you're not doing what you should be doing. And to him who knows what to do and does not do it, Okay? Sins. But Doug did a tune to that verse, right? Scripture Memory Melodies has a tune. If you know the good to do and do not do it, you're sinning. So, every temptation was answered with Scripture. Command that these stones become bread. Well, it's not the Father's will yet. What's wrong with eating? Well, right now it's a season of fasting and until the Father says, go eat, I'm not going to go eat. 
Same thing, the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And here he quotes verses from Psalm 91. And here he quotes, and he kind of selectively edits Psalm 91. He doesn't want to read all of the verses from Psalm 91 because the part that he leaves out talks about stepping on snakes. And he doesn't want to talk about that part. (laughs) But he does say, hey, look, he'll command his angels concerning you. Uh, On their hands, they'll bear you up so you will not strike your foot against a stone. And he's misquoting Scripture to say, here, tempt the Lord. Throw yourself off this building. He'll take care of you. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay? He doesn't dispute that that Satan was quoting verses. Yes, those verses are true. However, this verse is also true. And so the prime hermeneutic we have is to compare Scripture to Scripture. We have to validate every truth statement that God makes. Because God never wants lies. Every passage is true. And so yes, He will give His angels charge concerning you. But no, you don't put Him to the test. Don't put Him to the test. And, uh, and, that. and then the third temptation, all these things I will give you. He shows them the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Says to Him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship Me. Now at first that seems like a no-brainer. But really, what he's offering is the cross, is the crown without the cross. Okay? This is a way to have all the kingdoms of the world. The Father had promised him all the kingdoms of the world. You can have it without going to the cross. You don't have to suffer to get that. I'll give you, I'll give you everything the Father ever promised you. Just you have to fall down and worship me. And uh, that's, the, that's the real temptation there. We face the same thing. Are we willing to, I mean, we want the crown but are we willing to take up our cross? And then, because the cross is not pleasant, the cross hurts. And then Satan says, well, you shouldn't have to do that. You're better than that. You don't deserve that. Come on. If the Father loved you, He wouldn't put you through that. I love you. I'm not putting you through that. You should serve me. I'll be your father. I give lots of good things to my children. And Satan, he, he, he uses that again and again and again because it works. It works very well. And so humans decide they don't like suffering and uh, so they sell out. So Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And, uh, and so there it is. And so um, every temptation was answered with the word of God. That's why it's useful to have scripture in memory. That's why it's useful to have a verse ready to go for whatever the temptation is. Okay, um, Whatever, you're stuck in traffic, somebody cuts you off. And there's a verse in 1 Timothy that says, a pastor shall not be a striker. (laughs) So you use a verse. And you say, okay. I can't punch the guy in the nose. (laughs) Not one temptation led to even one personal sin. He was tempted in all things, even as we are, yet without sin yet without sin. Not one personal sin. The sum total of every temptation and his entire life of suffering generated the ability to help. Generated the ability to help. And I I stress this a lot. Ability is not automatic. You know, the Word of God is able 
to build you up and strengthen you, but it doesn't always do it because we don't always use the Word of God. Uh, think about Abel, prophet Abel. The Word of God is God, all Scripture is God breathed and prophet Abel. Okay? Profitable. But does the Word always profit us? No, because quite often we don't use the Word. And when we're not using it, when we're walking in darkness and doing our own thing, the Word's not profiting us at all until the discipline hits us and we decide, you know what, I probably should use, probably should use some doctrine here. Okay? And the first doctrine I'm going to start with is rebound. I'm going to confess. I'm going to get back in fellowship. Okay? I want to walk in the light. And then the Word of God really starts working, starts clicking, starts coming alive. The Word of God is able. And so the ability to help, the ability to help. Jesus Christ has the ability to be a faithful and merciful high priest, and He is exercising that ability all day, every day when He intercedes on our behalf. Keep in mind, though, it's also volitional. He's doing so because He wants to. He's doing so because He knows that's the will of His Father, and He loves doing the will of His Father. And so He's choosing volitionally to be our high priest, to pray on our behalf. He's able to do so, and He's willing to do so. So therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, because we have this high priest who can sympathize. What a blessing. Uh, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. We saw the earlier verses earlier. The fact that uh, a human high priest like Aaron and Eleazar and all the descendants, Ithamar and all these other high priests, they, uh, they can deal gently they can deal gently. They can't propitiate, but they can deal gently. And they can offer gifts and sacrifices, first for themselves and then for their flocks, then for those that they represent. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he identifies. And then um, other things here. Now, uh, verse 4, so no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Aaron didn't make himself a priest. God appointed him a priest. Jesus, likewise, was appointed a priest. Psalm 110, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So Christ did not glorify himself, uh, just as it was said to him, just as he says also in another passage somewhere, you know where it is, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay? Anyway, verse 7, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. Notice that? The father was able to save the son from death, but he didn't, thank God. Because had he done so, we're not saved. Had he done so, angelic conflict's not resolved. Had he done so, Satan is proved correct. Able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. You know, an answer no doesn't mean God didn't hear you. It means he heard you and the answer is still no. You're going to die. But you're going to live again. Okay? And although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Does he get to skate because he's a son? Okay? That's pride. That's human sin. That's, well, yeah, I know. 
I know technically it's a sin, but come on, it's me. God's okay with it. I mean, yeah. And so prideful, whatever, pastors, other people who should know better. They've stood in pulpits, they've preached, they've said, you know, this is wrong, and then they go out and they do it because, you know, well, yeah, those are for the little people. I'm, you know, God will overlook it, right? Because it's me. No. Judgment comes first with you. You're going to get hit twice as hard. How about that? And if Jesus can't claim any kind of exemption from suffering because he's a son, how do I think I rate? I don't. I can't. Even though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, perfecting perfection, he was already sinless perfect, but now he's perfected in learning obedience through the things that he suffered. Now he's equipped, he's able to be our merciful and faithful high priest. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So you have it there in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. I'm almost out of, I am out of time. Hebrews uh, 9, 26. The worst sermon to sit through is the one, the last one before a pastor's vacation. Because he's going to go and go and go on and on and on. <laughs> Hebrews 9, 26. Notice. Anyway. Um, unlike the high priest who has to keep coming back every year to do it again and again and again. Here it comes again, Day of Atonement. Here we go again. Jesus Christ once and for all with blood his own instead of blood not his own. That's what the humans bring. Um, Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, here's here's this consummation. It means we don't have to do that other consummation. Okay? Consummation of sin. But once the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here we have it. So when he comes back again, guess what? Um, Christ also, verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. All the difference in the world when he comes back at second advent because he was victorious in first advent. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this truth. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. I thank you for what you've taught us here in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And you've taken us, Father, to the depths, to the depths of Scripture and in things related to angels and things that are older than time itself, things that are older than humanity, things that go back to the word spoken through angels. It's, uh, these have been two uh, just deep, deep chapters, Father. I want to thank you for them. I want to thank you for chapters 3 and following what we have in front of us. More glory, more grace, more things to just celebrate over, Father. Uh, Thank you for allowing us to be a part of of these celebrations. That we get to thank you, the angels are thanking you, that everything, all creation is giving thanks, Father. I thank you for the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Father, if there's anybody here this morning that has never understood this before, that thought somehow is their sins that were sending them to hell and if they stopped doing sins maybe they could go to heaven i pray that today is the day they realize that when he comes back a second time it's without reference to sin that he uh, he accepted our sins uh, on the cross if we place our faith in christ that's removed that's gone 
And I pray, Father, that we would understand salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Might today be the day. Right here, with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, you don't have to walk an aisle or be baptized or do anything, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I thank you, Father, in his most precious and holy name. Amen.